Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Good evening, everybody. I'm Tiffany Cross, and tonight for Joy Reid, we begin to read out what they look back at the journey that was this year. Now, it's impossible to talk about 2021 without including the insurrection. It was an unprecedented attack on our government fueled by people who no longer believe in facts. But let's keep it 100. This should not have been surprising. We've had countless warning signs of violent racism in America, and this was just the latest example of white supremacy rearing its ugly head complete with a noose, gallows, and countless Confederate flags. Now, while some have had a racial reckoning after George Floyd's death in 2020, the insurrection was a glaring warning that a significant portion of our country is threatened by an America no longer powered by white dominance and one that takes accountability for our history. There it is. Cue the uproar over critical race theory, which is not taught anywhere for the record. This is leading to a reality where white parents are trying to ban books about real American history that does not feed a fairy tale. And while we did see some signs of justice this year with George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery and Dante Wright's killers convicted, at the same time, Kyle Rittenhouse, who killed two people, is being celebrated as the latest hero of the right-wing extremists, including those serving in Congress. His lionization is part of a larger vitriol we're seeing in American politics. It's gotten so bad that a father thought it was appropriate to tell President Biden on Christmas Eve to essentially go F himself. This was in front of his kid. That's the family values party for you. It should come as no surprise that now he's considering running for office. We've become so divided that people are risking and losing their lives because they don't trust science enough to get a vaccine. Prolonging a pandemic where more than 480,000 people have died this year alone. But for those of us who do believe in science, this year wasn't entirely awful. I mean, the vaccine did allow some of us to resume somewhat of our normal lives, with many of us seeing our family members in person for the first time in over a year. And of course, there was a lot more focus on those moments than on the kids who still, still have not been reunited with their families after our government separated them. That's among the many stories that didn't quite get the media attention they deserved. Like, for example, Jackson, Mississippi, still not having clean drinking water and the hundreds of mass shootings that we're doing absolutely nothing about. Or the climate change that fueled several natural disasters this year and will only get worse. Stick around. We're going to talk about that later in the show. Now, while Biden's infrastructure bill does have some climate provisions, Joe Manchin's opposition to build back better might have uh, might mean that we've lost our chance to tackle any meaningful action, especially with Republicans doing everything they can to suppress the vote and make sure Democrats no longer have a majority. So, yes, my friends, it was a tough year and it remains so even to the last days. But it would have been so much worse without the sacrifices of healthcare workers, teachers and many others and those who took a moment to put on a mask. 
It was a year that taught us a lot about who we are and what awaits all of us. As much as those anti-CRT people think otherwise, history does in fact matter, even our recent history. Joining me now is Democratic strategist Adrian Elrod, Tim Miller, writer at large for The Bulwark, and Eugene Daniels with the coldest Afro in D.C., White House correspondent for Politico. Thank you, my friends, for being here. Um, what a year, you guys. 2021 has been uh, a lot for all of us. Uh, Adrian, you're the woman on the panel. I want to kick it off with you. What was your biggest takeaway for 2021? You know, Tiffany, first of all, it's great to be with you. Um, my biggest takeaway of 2021 is science works. Not that I didn't know that before, but if we ever needed proof that science works, it's, it's what happened this year. Thank God for the mRNA vaccination. Um, thank goodness for research and development that goes into, um, you know, creating multitudes of vaccinations. You know, Tiffany, you may recall when COVID first came on the scene, we wondered if it was going to be two, three, four years until there was a vaccination but again, thanks to medical research and thanks to science, um, we got vaccinations much faster than we thought. And of course, the Biden administration got this implemented and got shots in the arms of over 200 million Americans. So science works. And, uh, you know, I just we just got to keep harping that. Uh, you, you've declared uh, you've opened a hornet's nest there, my friend, declaring science works uh, when there are so many anti-science people out there, sadly. But you're absolutely right. Science works. And I, I wish more people believed in that. Um, Tim, what about you? What's your biggest takeaway? Uh, well, I just want to uh, jump in on that, what Adrian said, I and mean, it was a miracle. It's not just that science works. I mean, this was a miracle drug that a lot that, that a, a lot of researchers, engineers have been working for years went into. It's it saved countless lives. And so, you know, I, I wrote this morning for The Bulwark a, a, an article that said 2021, not that bad. And I, I do think, uh, you know, with all due respect to your intro here, there, of course, there were a lot of bad things that happened in 2021. But, uh, you know, we got rid of Donald Trump. That was pretty good. Uh, I think that, uh, as we said, the researchers and and, uh, and the free market and the scientists all working together to create this miracle drug, that was all pretty good. There was there were good verdicts this year. We, we I think we can still for, have faith in a court system. If you look at the, the news yesterday with Maxwell, you go back to Chauvin earlier in this year, um, I think that uh, Americans showed this year our willingness to be helpful and welcoming the Afghan refugees who came back. It's been amazing. Uh, the selflessness and that in COVID. So yeah, there've been some jerks, um, no doubt this year. Uh, but I, I think that it's appropriate to, to look back and think about, you know, some of the positive stuff that happened as well. Yeah, I, I, that's a good point. But Eugene, you know, look for every, uh, George Floyd and Ahmaud Aubrey, there are so many other, uh, acts of injustice where there wasn't a cell phone around. Um, for all these court verdicts, there are hundreds of others that, um, did not produce justice for a family. And obviously justice would be those people still being alive and well with their families. But I'm curious your thoughts. What was your biggest takeaway from 2021? Yeah, I think everything everyone said is right. Um, but also, and, in, in, you know, as a pol political reporter on, on the panel, you know, thinking about how different the parties have become, right? That's been happening for years. But I think this year, the insurrection kind of cemented that, right? The Republican Party as a party geared to the feelings and, and urges um, of one man who isn't even in office right now is something we have never seen in American history. It's led to a lot of the issues that the Republican Party has um, dealt with in the party and, and has been doing outside of the party toward the Democrats and toward um, American people. That's something that I think that party is going to have to deal with for years to come. Whether they do that is one thing. Um, and the Democratic Party kind of realizing that it's one that 
needs to attract both a huge swath of voters and support from all types of folks in Congress, people from Bernie Manchin and Joe Manchin. Sorry, sorry excuse me, Bernie Sanders and Joe Manchin. <laughs> not related. Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and that makes that makes governing difficult, right? That makes what we've seen over this year, I'm watching for the first time in a long time, how difficult it is to govern when there's a party that is talking about policy and fighting about policy as opposed to personality. So both of those things, I think, are, are my takeaway as we as we move forward into the next year. Yeah, I take your point. Uh, Tim, I want to kick it back to you because Eugene is saying, you know, this is something the party now has to reckon with. I take a bit of an issue with that because this has really been the only Republican party I've known. I mean, they're saying the quiet part out loud right now, but this didn't begin with Trump. Uh, And even though Trump has gone from the party, Trumpism is alive and well and always has been. Why do you think there are so many white supremacists and science deniers who always feel so at home in the Republican Party? And that's really expanding uh, as, as we see what's playing out now in our politics. What's your take on that? Well, look, Tiffany, I, I think that, um, you know, certainly that there has been this strain in the Republican Party for a long time. I think Stuart Stevens wrote a good book about this because it was all a lie. Um, I, yeah. I think it's not factual, right, to say that, that there's nothing that was from the McCain platform in 2008 that was for immigration reform, for cap and trade to deal with climate, uh, right? I mean, you can have plenty of complaints about the 2008 campaign that John McCain ran, but that, that was very different than what you see in 2020. So I, I think it's true that it's, it's certainly gotten worse over the course of the past decade. I, I think just looking at this year, the key point to, to Eugene's point is after January 6th, if we all remember back to January 7th, I do think that there was this moment, a kind of a moment of reckoning where it was like, you know, Mitch, even Mitch McConnell was like, this is a little too far for me. Even John Cornyn, even Lindsey Graham thought things have gotten out of hand. And, and I think at Fox, you even saw a change in tone for a day or two, maybe an hour or two. Uh, but, but you thought for a moment that, that maybe there would be this sort of uh, tack back and that the adults would come in and say, we cannot be a revanchist party that plays into this, these constre- extremists and conspiracists. You know, we, we have to have some responsibility and some, you know, prudence to use an old George H.W. word, you know, within our conservatism. And that lasted about a day or a week. And, and I think uh, that is the most telling thing about this year is that that that, that we all saw what the Republican Party was of, under Trump, uh, but it really solidified, I think, what it's going to be for the medium term right now because yeah. the uh, the politicians responded to what their voters wanted and the voters looked at January sixth and they either said eh, I'm okay with it on balance or some of them said I want more of that and, and the politicians are going along with that. Yeah. I, and I look, I take your point. I just I think the challenge for a lot of folks is the road that it took to get there. Donald Trump didn't come out the blue. There was so much that happened that paved the way for him. Um, so we'll see. I mean, look, I, I really hope that um, there are some sensible Republicans uh, to come out and, and rebuke this stuff. Right now, it looks like it's become the party of Trump um, and it's really impacting all of our mental health, which brings me to my next point. Um, mental health. I, I was really happy to see that this you know, issue took such center stage in 2021. You guys remember when Naomi Osaka um, took that break uh, for mental health, Simone Biles, you know, took that break in the Olympics when she was supposed to perform and said, you know, I need a moment. Adrian, how do you think this is going to impact us um, or how you think this did impact us in 2021? There's something about the mental health discussion being paired with what people called the great resignation. Uh, we called October striketober because workers were demanding better conditions. You know, there's something about us being able to breathe and, you know, have a life. Um, what, what do you think about this year and how we've dealt with those issues? 
Yeah. Look, Tiffany, I'm glad that you're sort of drawing this correlation between, you know, what what people, public figures like Simone Biles and Naomi Osaka have done, um, you know, how they feel comfortable coming out there and talking about mental health and also how that sort of portends to, you know, workers in America who are demanding better wages, who are demanding better working conditions and how that is more accepted. Not that it wasn't accepted by people like us, you know, 10 years ago. But when you look at how far we've come over the last decade, we certainly have a lot of work to do, but it's become a far more acceptable discussion to have. So um, I applaud, you know, the, the people who are willing to speak out again, whether it's the the line worker who wants a better wage and who wants better working conditions, or whether it's Simone Biles who says, you know what, I may be the best athlete in the world, the best at my craft and what I do, but I need a mental break from this. And I'm going to step back and let some of the other gymnasts um, you know, take the, take the lead here. So I think it's great progress. We still have a lot of work to do, but the fact that we're able to have these conversations in a public facing manner, um, you know, is, is, is a step in the right direction. And I think, um, you know, we're going to keep hearing more about people who are willing to come out and speak about mental health and it's going to have a continuous positive impact on society. Yeah, I completely agree with you, um, Eugene. I know, you know, it's kind of a generational divide sometimes because, you know, I'm a um, Gen Xer, um, millennial, if my if anybody asks. But in real life, I'm a Gen Xer, and I I think the way that we view uh, our our work ethic is sometimes different from younger people. I mean, it's really been younger people out on the front line saying, "Hey, I need a minute here," um, or you know, prioritizing their uh, mental health in a way that we just weren't raised to do, quite frankly. What's your take on it? No, I think you're right. I have two younger siblings. I'm here with them now at my parents' house. And um, the difference in the way that they are saying, no, you don't have to live that way. You don't have to be exhausted all the time. You don't have to put yourself last or your relationships last is really something that all of us can take to heart, right? This entire year was a, re a stark reminder, including last year, but especially this year, about how much collective um, how much how much if you can't bring your full self right like whether you're tired or whatever how you talk to your family whether or not you're around them how you bring that to work that actually matters right how you treat it at work actually matters i think the pandemic forces saw to sit down and say you talked about that great resignation a lot of the reason people aren't going to work outside of being scared of covid19 is also because they're like well you're not paying me enough and i'm not enjoying it and so that is something that young people have been at the forefront of for years yeah, I agree. And a lot of people, you know, are trying to make that argument like, oh, you know, the unemployment checks uh, are too much. That means the private sector has to pay people more. Um, so, yeah, it's been a great year when it comes to uh, at least recognizing the challenges of mental health. But we have way too much to talk about. So Adrian, Tim and Eugene are sticking around because up next on The Readout, how everything that happened in 2021 will shape the political landscape in 2022 as we head into midterms. Plus, what we're learning about today's phone call between President Biden and Vladimir Putin amid growing concern about the crisis in Ukraine, Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman joins me. Also, many will be forced to ring in the new year without their traditional champagne toast. That's right, bubbly is in short supply. And the climate crisis is part of the reason. And she became a sensation at the Biden inauguration. Now, poet Amanda Gorman has a hopeful message for 2022. The readout continues right after this. Today and every day, Planned Parenthood is committed to ensuring that everyone has the information and resources they need to make their own decisions about their bodies, including abortion care. Lawmakers who oppose abortion are attacking Planned Parenthood, 
which means affordable, high-quality, basic health care for more than 2 million people is at stake. The right to control our bodies and get the health care we need has been stolen from us. And now, politicians in nearly every state have introduced bills that would block people from getting the sexual and reproductive care they need. Planned Parenthood believes everyone deserves health care. It's a human right. That's why they fight every day to push for common-sense policies that protect our right to control our own bodies and against policies that interfere with decisions between patients and their doctor. Planned Parenthood needs your support now more than ever. With supporters like you, we can reclaim our rights and protect and expand access to abortion care. Visit PlannedParenthood.org future. That's PlannedParenthood.org future. After a tumultuous year in 2021, 2022 will be an even busier one in politics. The Senate returns next week with a lot on its plate, especially two major parts on President Biden's agenda. Majority Leader Chuck Schumer has promised a vote on the Build Back Better bill, despite filibuster-loving Joe Manchin's opposition. He has also promised to take up voting rights in the first two weeks of the new year and signaled that he would force a change in Senate rules to overcome Republican obstruction. Uh, yeah. Democrats are also considering how to tackle immigration after an effort to include protections was cut from the Build Back Better bill. And while President Biden recently extended the student loan payment, (coughs) excuse me, with the pandemic extending into a third year, advocates (coughs) and some of our bank accounts (coughs) want to see Congress make good on promises to cancel student loan debt in the new year. (coughs) Excuse me. I promise everyone this is not a COVID cough. It's It just went down the wrong type. Apologies. All of this will undoubtedly have a huge impact on the looming midterm elections with several high state governor's races and control of Congress on the line. Back with me are Adrian Elrod, Tim Miller, and Eugene Daniels. You guys, I promise this is not a COVID cough. It's just live TV folks that I inhaled the wrong way. Anyway, thank you guys for being back and bearing with me uh, through that challenging read. All right. So coming up, uh, Eugene, I want to ask you first, because there is a lot happening in politics. I'm curious your take on what is the political headline of 2022 that has yet to be written, my friend? (laughs) That's a that's a tough one. I hope one of my editors or me ends up writing it. I think the thing is, is going to be um, whether Democratic leaders really listen to um, their voters and listen to advocates within their party saying things like, just like you said, getting rid of the filibuster or figuring out a way to carve out um, a voting rights um, exception in the filibuster to get voting rights done. And whether or not Joe Manchin or whether or not other Democrats actually accept what Joe Manchin is willing to give them on Build Back Better. Those are the two things um, that are going to be able to get done if Democrats want them to, right? That is a strong, um, that is going to be depend on President Biden pushing Joe Manchin and Kirsten Sinema on the filibuster. Kirsten Sinema, I think right now, is the staunchest advocate for the filibuster in the Democratic Party. And then you have how much the members of Congress are going to finally get together and figure out what happens with Build Back Better. Those are the biggest things that are going to happen for the country for this year, right? Whether or not the Voting Rights um, Acts get done, because you have people starting to vote um, in the primaries coming up just in a few months. And that thing, that's, that's going to be something really interesting for folks to watch. 
We'll see. I mean, I don't I don't know if Democrats can hold the majority um, with the rampant voter suppression that we've seen. I mean, this is GOP led voter suppression at the state level, uh, which has always been something that has plagued democracy. So it's kind of hard to imagine why they don't um, adjust the rules to make sure that everybody has an access to the to the ballot. Um, Tim, what do you got? What, what, what do you think the political headline that we have yet to read will be? And maybe you'll write the political headline. Who knows? <laughs> Uh, well, I, I just, I'll just I'll answer that question, but just really quick, I want to push back on this. I, I think that the Democrats' big concern coming up here shouldn't isn't really voter suppression as much as it is uh, Republicans going around the rules to literally try to cheat, as we saw, uh, you know, in 2020 and 2024. Uh, you know, the, the Republicans tried voter suppression in 2020 and it backfired. Um, you know, it, what it what it did was it led to an increased energy and increased interest in voting. So this isn't to say that it couldn't succeed at a different time. Uh, but but right now, I think the more urgent threat that Democrats in Congress need to look to is is how to prevent you know, in 2024, a redux of what we saw in 2020, which is a Republican House or Senate, you know, trying to overturn a legal and fair result in a state that the Democrats won. Um, uh, as far as what the what the big um, uh, uh, headline, I think, of 2022 that hasn't been written yet, I think that the Democrats are going to end up getting past a, a version of BBB that, that might hopefully be better politically. It might not be as good as on um, policy as every you know progressive activist wants, but but something that is that is uh, uh, more tangible, more stripped down. Uh, whether it's either uh, the universal pre K provision, uh, whether it's parental leave, um, uh, uh, the the um, uh, pr- uh, prescription drug costs uh, provision on insulin, a couple things like that, and paying for it with increased taxes. I, I think that they are going to uh, on the on the wealthy. I think that they are going to get a deal on. That uh, I think there's a lot of pessimism about this right now, um, but but I would look to the spring and think that that there'll be something that's a little bit smaller but easier to sell that the Democrats can pass in 2022. Um, Tim, you are quite the optimist on the panel uh, this evening, and I don't know if Why people not? will be excited. It's <laughs> I don't know if as many people will be excited about a watered down BBB because you have to wonder, um, you know, right. Well, because when it kicks back to the House, will the progressives vote for it? You know, Uh, so we'll see. We'll we'll keep our eye on it. Adrian, what do you think? What's the what's the big political headline that awaits us in 2022? Well, I'm going to try to compete with Tim to be the most optimistic person on the panel tonight. Um, I think the headline that is going to be written in the very near future is Democrats passed historic Uh, once in a generation legislation. I think that is going to be built back better. And Tiffany, I completely agree with you. I mean, I wish we were looking at a $6 trillion bill, which is what, you know, progressives pushed and what, you know, many in the party embraced to start off with. Um, But even if we pass something in the $1.4 trillion range, we're still looking at some very historic pieces and provisions of legislation that are going to have a dramatic impact on the lives of, of, of American families. Hopefully that will include a 10-year extension of the child tax credit. That's still, of course, uh, being debated. We'll see what Senator Manchin comes down on that. But some of these climate provisions are going to have dramatic impacts. Um, Expanded pre-K so that every child in America, no matter of their socioeconomic or purely economic background, can get um, expanded child care, I'm sorry, uh, pre-K access. Um, Expanded child care access so that parents can actually go back to work and not worry about who's going to take care of their kid. There's a lot of, of great things in that legislation, I, but I completely agree with you. I, I hope that we don't let perfect be the enemy of the good and that this ends up getting passed. I wish we were looking at something bigger, but I think ultimately at the end of the day, whatever we pass is going to be historic and it's going to be something that 
uh, we haven't seen in, in you know, pass in Congress in, in several decades. And that's going to be a big thing and a good thing for the American people. Yeah, I, and I agree with you. You know, I feel like a lot of the coverage this year was focused on how much this plan costs. And I think that matters to maybe inside the Beltway people. But American people across this country are not interested in how much it costs. They have their own household debt to worry yeah. about. They want to know what policy is going to impact their lives tomorrow. Um, so we'll see what, what happens with Build Back Better. Uh, should be quite an interesting thing. I will tell you guys, I am worried a political headline uh, might be about a more contagious, um, infectious, highly uh, virulent variant uh, coming along. Um, despite my cough, uh, I promise I, I am OK. Uh, but I think it's, um, you know, just a really scary thing to, to navigate this this virus. So knock on wood, that, that will not happen. Um, Eugene, I have a very serious question for you that I'd like you to address. Um, what role do you think Lil Nas X will play in the GOP's culture wars of battles they like to invent? What's your take? <laughs> I mean, Lil Nas X is one of those artists that comes around every once in a while that really does rile up conservatives, right? And he hits at a couple of different things, right? He is gay, he's black, and so those are those are um, places where they have huge issues um, dealing in within their own party, how they interact with those two groups. And I think that they'll continue to harp on things like that because one thing that's been clear about Lil Nas X, for those that don't have listened to his album, um, is that he's going to continue to push the envelope. Um, and as we were talking about young people, he's one of those perfect examples of young people who are just going to live their life. And if we don't get on, if us old people don't get with it, then that's too damn bad, right? That is something I think that has been really fascinating to watch this year. It is. It's really interesting. You know what would really make these conservative right-wing extremists lose their mind? If Lil Nas X teamed up with Cardi B and did a duet uh, about voting I rights and equality. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, I, you know, I am almost 100% certain that Cardi B and Lil Nas X are watching this show right now. Because um, what else would they be doing at the end of the year? Uh, and maybe this will happen. We shall see. We shall see. Um, Tim, what do you think? I mean, I feel like, honestly, when the Cardi B song WAP dropped, I have to tell you, the Republicans knew that song better than I did. I mean, they are obsessed with her. Why do you think that is? <laughs> I, I don't have. I don't want to act like I'm ducking the question. I don't have an answer to that one. I do say if Little Mouse is watching, he should definitely call me. My DMs are open. Uh, and, um, and, and I, I, I hate to, to take us down to a serious note, but while I'm here, um, I know Eugene also spent a lot of time in northern north of Denver, and that's his neck of the woods too. There is a horrible raging fire right now going through my old neck of the woods in Denver. I know that uh, I've got some friends who are up there, and Eugene does. So I just want to give a shout out to those folks and the firefighters who are out there uh, uh, trying to put that out um, while I had a chance on here and say that my thoughts are with all my, my people back in Denver and Boulder and that area. I'm so glad you did that, Tim. Thank you. Uh, thank you so much. And our thoughts are with those folks as well. Um, all right. I'm going to go down a gallon of water and suck on a throat lozenger. Um, but my thanks to Adrian Elrod, Tim Miller and Eugene Daniels. And don't go anywhere because up next on The Readout, President Biden holds a high stakes call with Vladimir Putin amid escalating tensions between Russia and Ukraine. Can he help keep those tensions from ramping up into a full blown military conflict? Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman joins me next. We'll be right back. Friday, Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes is coming to IMAX and theaters everywhere. What a wonderful day! 
This summer, one movie event will reign. It is our time. They stole my village. I know where they're taking your clan. Bend for your king. Never. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Only in theaters Friday. Tickets on sale now. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Okay, in a highly anticipated phone call today, President Joe Biden spoke to Russian leader Vladimir Putin. This 50-minute call, which notably came at Putin's request, is their second conversation this month about the escalating tensions at the Ukrainian border, where Russia has amassed thousands of troops. It's a diplomatic and military standoff that's now come to a crisis. But let's be clear, this is a crisis entirely of Russia's making. Just like his illegal annexation of Crimea in 2014, Putin is threatening once again to withdraw, to redraw the map of Europe. He's moving Russian troops to the border of Ukraine for months now, a completely unprovoked military buildup that clearly poses a threat to Ukraine's sovereignty. Now, Putin is leveraging the crisis that he created to demand security guarantees from the West. Namely, he wants Ukraine barred from joining NATO and wants NATO's further expansion halted, among other things, all of which have already been rejected. But according to The Washington Post, analysts warned that Putin's demands could all just be a pretext for military action. Nevertheless, the U.S. is standing firm with its NATO allies against Putin's belligerence while trying to ease tensions through diplomacy. According to the White House readout of today's call, President Biden urged to de-escalate tensions with Ukraine and made clear that the United States and its allies and partners will respond decisively if Russia further invades Ukraine. Now, this comes after Russia has been ratcheting up tensions to an almost hysterical degree. Earlier this month, Russia's deputy foreign minister likened the standoff to the Cuban Missile Crisis. Just last week, Putin launched a hypersonic cruise missile in a blatant attempt to intimidate the West. And in a press conference, he argued that Russia is actually entitled to Ukraine's territory. Just so you understand, that's tantamount to Britain saying they're entitled to America. With me now is Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman, former director for European Affairs for the U.S. National Security Council and executive board member of the Renew Democracy Initiative. Uh, thank you so much for uh, being with me tonight, Alex. I have to say, um, again, this is a crisis that Vladimir Putin, it's his own making. I mean, he introduced uh, this, this crisis. Um, are, are Putin's demands just a pretext um, of seizing more territory from Ukraine? What's your take? So I think ultimately, uh, I think the di discussions around European security and all these uh, assurances that he's looking to extract or guarantees that he's looking to extract either bilaterally from the U.S. or NATO and NATO amount to maybe a bit of a sideshow. Frankly, his major objective here is to regain control of Ukraine. It's one of those things that uh, a legacy of the collapse of the Soviet Union uh, in Putin's own conception of uh, the biggest uh, tragedy in the 20th century, and he's looking to reverse that. He's now uh, gathered sufficient strength 
he thought he uh, successfully uh, realized a failed state in Ukraine in 2014 when he snatched up 7% of the territory, millions of people isolated in the uh, Russian-controlled uh, territories. But that's not enough. It turns out that Ukraine is actually uh, consolidated around a national identity, uh, consolidated around this idea of integrating with uh, Europe. And now he's looking for an opportunity to do some more damage to pull Ukraine back into uh, into Russia's orbit, recognizing that if he doesn't act now, um, it's only going to get harder. Yeah. And, you know, when Zelensky first started uh, sounding the alarm on this, he said that there was a group of Russians and Ukrainians uh, trying to stage a crew um, in, in Ukraine, which is interesting why U- Ukrainians will be a part of that. Um, what message did Biden need to send today? And, and do you think, like, is, is it wise for Biden to kind of help Putin save face and offer him an off ramp um, or, or should he double down? You know, it's uh, there. All these ideas of off ramps and face saving measures are appropriate. I think, frankly, this, the call today was a little bit puzzling. It came on relatively short notice, as far as we can tell from the public perspective, uh, just on a day or so notice right before the, the holidays. And uh, the topic uh, uh, was Ukraine. And this is in light of the fact that within about a week or so, a little bit more than a week, the uh, Russians and the U.S. are going to start um, significant consultations uh, headed up by senior uh, diplomats. So this, the, the reason for this call isn't entirely clear. I mean, there's an idea here that he's just checking the block on continued diplomacy and building the case as to why he might need to, or Putin might need to go conduct his offensive in Ukraine. He's exhausted all the opportunities, all the options with regards to diplomacy. With regards to what President Biden needed to do, uh, he just needed to, to lay down a significant message uh, of decisive actions in response to Russian aggression and also leave the door open for diplomacy. But uh, I fear that's not gonna be enough. I think that uh, taking action after the Russians uh, invade, conduct the largest offensive in, U- in, in uh, Ukraine since World War II, that's go- going to be trying to uh, close the barn door after the cows have uh, left. And I yeah. think that's, that's a mistake. We should be doing a lot more now uh, with regard to sending a strong message of what could happen Maybe going so far, uh, frankly, I'm supportive of arming the Ukrainians to make it uh, less palatable for the Russians to attack. And in so doing, deterring what could end up being a uh, catastrophe, unknown uh, consequences. So that's interesting that you say arming the Ukrainians because um, Zelensky, I mean, he's a former actor and comedian, as I'm sure you well know. Um, No shade, America elected a reality TV star to his first job in government as president of the United States. But, I mean, Zelensky, nonetheless, he is placing people from his old comedy troupe in, like, very senior positions, uh, not people with a lot of foreign policy experience. Uh, by uh, Putin basically threatening um, Ukraine, he's kind of making the point that they do actually need NATO's protection. And I'm—I mean, is Zelensky in a position to defend Ukraine? Uh, well, let's say that Ukraine is a, in a far better position to defend itself uh, now than it has been at any other point in recent history. Over the past seven and a half, um, uh, actually closer to eight years, they've made significant improvements. But all that has done is close the gap somewhat between uh, how far ahead the Russians were and uh, started on the margins, at least, to affect the calculus of what kind of damage the Ukrainians could do as the, the Russians launched their offensive. This is not going to look anything like we uh, what we saw in 2014. This is going to be a combination of Syria, um, Ukraine, and things that we actually haven't witnessed in, in decades. 
this will be a massive aerial bombardment, cruise missile strikes, and uh, targeting what I think are morale targets, crushing the will of the Ukrainian population to uh, resist Russian uh, aggression. So this is going to be a massive, massive, uh, 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 this is shaping up right now to be a massive military offensive that is going to draw in European powers. The Lithuanians and Estonians already have agreed to, to arm the, the um, Ukrainians. I can't imagine the Poles and the Romanians are going to be too far behind. And we're, we're going to be in this some way or another. Uh, so the best we could do now is really send a strong message that this is not what Russia wants. Severe punishing sanctions, posture changes, more U.S. forces in Europe, and um, and really arming the Ukrainians are, are part of the formula of success. That That's a very frightening picture um, you just painted, uh, Alex. I, just really quickly, we're, we're out of time, but I'm just curious your thoughts. Um, is any of this relevant to what's happening in the in our country domestically? You know, does, does Putin look at what's happening here and it's like, yeah, America's weak, which, of course, he had a hand um, in stowing a lot of uh, discord in this country. Um, but looking at what we're dealing with with COVID, you know, withdrawing from Afghanistan, looking at this confluence of things, does he say now's the time? Because, again, this is his doing, a crisis he created. He requested this phone call. Does he look at this through the lens of U.S. is weakening? Now's my time to strike. That's exactly right. He's acting on both need this need to keep Ukraine uh, within his sphere of influence, uh, prevent a successful Ukraine from materializing that threatens his own regi regime, and also the opportunity, the opportunity of a country, the U.S., uh, having a coup attempt on January 6th. I, I fear that if we had not had that episode, uh, we would probably not be facing these kinds of situations, these kinds of challenges. That's not causality, but there's a link there. And I think yeah. it's also uh, COVID. The Russians are actually having a hard time with COVID right now. It's only going to get worse. Um, their their uh, Sputnik vaccine is not going to be nearly as effective as, as a, our, our techno, uh, highly advanced uh, vaccines. But there is all sorts of uh, weakness that he perceived yeah. uh, here and in, in Europe. Uh, the A scene between the Europe Europeans and the U.S. and right, the leverage yeah. that he's winning with regards to energy. So this is all kind of uh, uh, emboldening him to take action. Yeah. And you're right. Russia has their own problems. I mean, they've got slow growing rages and a lot of opposition groups against uh, Vladimir Putin. So we will definitely keep our eye on it. Good job, by the way, your appearance on Curb Your Enthusiasm. I caught it. One of my favorite shows. Um, so thank you so much for uh, joining us tonight. Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman. Yes, it was fun to watch. All right. Thank you. Happy New Year to you. And tell your wife I said hello. All right. Uh, if you're planning on popping the cork on some old bubbly tomorrow night, you should definitely stick around to hear about how the climate crisis is threatening that entire industry. Stay with us. All right, everybody. I know we have about 28 hours until the ball drops, but in the words of Beyonce, we like to party. Sorry for my singing. I can't. But I do want to cheer to the new year. And I imagine, like me, many of you will be popping a bottle of bub with your friends and family tomorrow. Sadly, some of you will be drinking alone because you're in quarantine or you have to be on air Saturday morning like me. Whatever the reason, I'm sorry. But even worse, some of you could be popping a bottle of English sparkling wine. I know the horror. But that's for an entirely different but equally disturbing reason. 
Extreme weather conditions are starting to push good wine out of traditional regions like France, Italy, and California into places further north and south, like Norway, Oregon, and the aforementioned England. It's the literal polarization of wine. Take, for example, France. Extreme weather has hammered the country, leaving its world-class wine and champagne regions hurting. A French government forecast showed that the 2021 harvest was the smallest in at least 50 years. Now, that's a devastating blow to a country whose second largest export uh, industry is actually wine. The threatening effects of the climate crisis on wine are having serious and life-changing consequences. I'm joined now by Greg Jones, CEO of Abacella Winery. He's also an atmospheric scientist and viticultural climatologist. I hope I said that uh, correctly. Uh, Greg, you'll correct me if I didn't. Um, This is a really interesting story. I mean, it's obviously disappointing for champagne lovers, um, but the the bigger challenge is, of course, protecting Earth. What's the solution to to all of this? And because it's so serious, I'm just going to take a sip of the champagne while you tell us what can be done to preserve our precious uh, cocktails. Well, first of all, thanks for having me uh, on, on air today. Uh, This is a really big issue. Uh, We've been noticing in agriculture in general, but in grape growing in specifically, uh, climates have been changing all over the world and the rise of extreme events that have become more and more problematic, whether it be uh, heat extremes and or hail and or heavy rain have really caused some uh, major challenges. In 2021 in Champaign, a combination of, of frost, hail, heavy rain, and quite a bit of mildew led to a very, very difficult vintage. Uh, there will be some people that just will not even produce whatsoever. Um, there's there's hope though. There's still, I think, plenty of uh, wine out there. Um, uh, for this coming year, Champagne does something that is very similar to what OPEC does with oil and what maple syrup is done with in Quebec. Uh, they do have supplies that they keep uh, behind for delivery uh, for you know a year like this. Um, but the challenge is, is that the supply chain may be more difficult than anything. Mm. Um, the supply chain uh, is certainly a challenge with a lot of industries. You know, and hearing you uh, talk about this, I'm curious if we cannot uh, address this this challenge with, with champagne. Like what, what is the responsibility of the consumer? Like will prices start to go up significantly? Um, should people be buying champagne, buying more champagne? I understand the champagne committee is trying to decrease the carbon footprint uh, of, of what's happening in these regions sure. for, for us at home watching. Like what, what should we be doing? Well, I think the whole industry is uh, trying to look at this as a broader issue. The, the idea, number one, is to really look at packaging. How does uh, shipping glass bottles all around the world um, uh, impact our carbon footprint? So I think there's going to be some major changes in packaging in the future. But as consumers, we just need to be aware of where our products are coming from. Can we buy more locally or can we buy more sustainably in terms of how that product has gotten to our doorstep? Uh, great advice, especially as so many people uh, will be popping bottles tomorrow uh, night for New Year's. Uh, because tomorrow night mm-hmm. is New Year's Eve, I'm just curious what you will be drinking uh, tomorrow night when, when it's time uh, to bring in the new year. Well, I have to admit that uh, I do have an Oregon sparkling wine on my uh, on my menu for tomorrow night. Uh, I think there's some wonderful sparkling wines made throughout uh, wine regions in the United States. So if you cannot, for whatever reason it is, 
find a champagne on the shelf at the marketplace. Look for something else from uh, maybe upstate New York or Oregon or uh, Washington. There's some really good sparkling wines made by other producers out there. That's really uh, sound advice. And, you know, 2021 has been a challenging year. Uh, 2022 may be another challenging year. Please don't take our wine and champagne away from us. Uh, thank you so much, Greg Jones. Cheers to you and happy uh, new year. And don't go anywhere at home because up next, America's Youth Poet Laureate Amanda Gorman pens an extraordinary new poem to send us into the new year brimming with hope and inspiration. We'll be right back. All right, we entered 2021 weary from the first year of the pandemic. Many of us naively hoped that a new year meant we could put the tough parts of 2020 behind us. But for so many of you out there, 2021 was just as hard as the previous year. Trust me, I understand and I know. Whether you've gone through financial struggles or mental health challenges, the past two years have not been easy at all. But the prophetic words of the young Amanda Gorman, a beautiful, unapologetic Black woman, have been a beacon of hope, quite frankly. On Inauguration Day, Gorman inspired millions with her poem, The Hill We Climb. Her poetry is a call to action. We have so much to process from 2021, and we have a lot ahead of us as a nation. We're entering 2022 with strength, not naivete. We turn our gaze forward with passion and awakened optimism. That is the powerful spirit that Gorman's most recent poem, New Day's Lyric, evokes. To quote Gorman, we steadily vow that no matter how we are weighed down, we must always pave a way forward. Here is Gorman reading part of that poem this evening. Even if we never get back to normal, someday we can venture beyond it to leave the known and take the first steps. So let us not return to what was normal, but reach toward what is next, what was cursed. We will cure what was plagued. We will prove pure. Where we tend to argue, we will try to agree. Those fortunes we foreswore, now the future we foresee. Where we weren't aware, we're now awake. Those moments we missed are now these moments we make, the moments we meet. And our hearts, once all together beaten, now all together beat. Beautiful indeed. And that's tonight's readout. Happy New Year, everybody. And don't worry, Joy will be right back here on Monday after some well-deserved and much-needed time off. And you can catch me on The Cross Connection right here on MSNBC Saturday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. And together, we can welcome in the first day of 2022. We've got a great show planned, so you don't want to miss it. I'll be joined by Dr. Jason Johnson uh, on set. And we have a couple of members of Congress joining us as well. We'll have uh, the new member of Congress from Ohio, Congresswoman Chantelle Brown, as well as Congressman uh, Adriano Espayat out of New York. So we've got a jam-packed show. We will talk a lot about politics, but we will also do it for the culture like we do every Saturday. You don't want to miss it. I'll see you Saturday morning right here, MSNBC, 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time for The Cross Connection. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about Work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. 
tap the banner to go to monday.com.